0: Theaters that won't kill you in honor of the questionable decisions of large movie chains. What's the movie you saw in a drive-in?
1: I'm Katie Rich, and there's this one scene in the original Shrek where they look up at a sky full of stars, which I remember because I saw it at a drive-in when the screen was surrounded by stars. Shout out to the Big Mo in Mineta, South Carolina. Still open.
2: I'm Matt Patches, and I have never been to a drive-in movie theater, but I have been to sci-fi dine-in theater at disney world which is
1: at mgm studios now yeah something else
2: yeah which is uh supposed to pretend to be a drive-in movie theater with classic sci-fi b-movies
1: my mind as a kid i was
0: obsessed
3: with
0: it uh hey it's me dave at the seven and my answer is wild wild west because it's better at a drive-in
3: uh, and I'm David Ehrlich, and I would have loved to have seen Wild Wild West at a drive-in, but sadly, like Matt Patches, I don't think I've, I've been to drive-ins, but not while they were playing movies. <laughs> um, That's weird. I, yeah, I would love to remedy that one day. <laughs> yeah, why I were, were you we at a drive-in that wasn't playing a movie? I think it was, you know, murder turns, and it might not. I think it was one of the situations where I just like drove by a drive-in and was like, oh, I want to check that out. And it was just a bunch of like speakers hanging around wires and a screen.
1: Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 305 and Pandemic 15. It's the week of Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. That was the day that in 1916, Mary Pickford became the first woman to secure a million-dollar contract for her two-year producer deal with Paramount Pictures. I guess that was before she found a United Artist?
0: Uh, I believe so, yes. This is like her early pictures and it was not only like the first million-dollar deal for a woman, but it was... Uh, I think the first deal where she would have also gotten uh, profit points on her movies after she shot them
1: a hundred years later, women have really solved everything in Hollywood. It's, mm-hmm. uh,
3: it's
1: good to know. Uh, I hear that we have reviews from David.
3: We do now as listeners might remember last week, I issued uh, a call to our listeners uh, to shame patches in our review segment for <laughs> dismissing the last of us. Now I knew at the time, and I'm afraid I'm about to see this be borne out, that this would backfire horribly on me somehow. Uh, but I'm excited to find out I'm here to exactly it it in goes. what fashion. So really let's, let's go on this journey together. Uh, Jeff Burnett says, per David's request. So already we have a reference to uh, the, the gauntlet that was thrown. I've been meaning to do a new review since my last one was a little mean over something that doesn't matter. And David giving me permission to dunk on patches is the perfect time to do so. I've never played The Last of Us, but Patches claiming the first Austin Powers is the most outdated one is the craziest hot take I've ever heard.
2: He's the bringing movie, this from Twitter. This is not this is not okay. <laughs> Father. Happy to discuss if necessary.
3: The movie is critical of his 60s behavior. The other films have an attitude of thinking that's just who he is and it's adorable. And saying The Parks and Recreation was lame in its Zoom chat format. What the hell else were they supposed to do? <laughs> JFC. And he talks over people. Anyway, love the show, and as always, let Katie and Dave talk more. You, Katie and Dave, do you have any thing you would like to add to that review? Uh
1: no, I have an important breaking news, which is that Jeff Wells wrote about Twister today. God. Today, uh, <laughs> like, posted on Twitter like two minutes ago.
3: So. Beloved IndieWire employee Jeff Wells.
0: <laughs> oh no, that's <laughs> yeah, one so- away from a Beetlejuice. Let's let's tamp <laughs> it down.
3: Uh, all right. Los Angelicat cat says, "Longtime listener, five stars." Also, Jeppernet, we appreciate your five stars. I've been yeah. listening since the Opkino days, and David's heartfelt plea for reviews on the last episode really hit home. <laughs> Patches and polygons coverage of The Last of Us Part Two is truly a disgrace. Everyone knows video games are trash art for adolescent <laughs> boys, and giving <laughs> any coverage to it that means himself I and mean, his publication. I don't. Roger Ebert was right. Five stars, <laughs> obviously. This review. uh <laughs> Why not? Meanwhile, while David's about to endorse a video game. <laughs> so, oh short. Sure. Listen, I I do I report, you decide. Uh retweets are not endorsements.
2: You are the Fox uh, News so podcast. You
3: know. uh, oh boy. Um Balding Yoda says can't spell G-O-P without Go patches. <laughs> With fact.
2: Not loving this new catchphrase.
1: <laughs> this is like sad patches, the uh the revival. <laughs> oh <I'm>, the <laughs> potato patches, it's
0: it just comes around every couple of years. <laughs>
3: That's it. That's all I got, JK. <laughs> I've been appreciating the pandemic check-in episodes where you all have been talking the, taking the time to check in with each other and by proxy, us listeners. It's been a nice respite from all the madness. I've been listening for a while, but given how hard my spit take was for this joke from Dave Seven, figured I'm overdue for that glowing five-star review. And I'm specifically missing Dave Seven's brand of humor these days. Storm of spoilers turned me on to fighting in the war room. And as much as I love the banter from that power trio, I just can't be bothered to rewatch lost right now. I'm in the midst of a mad men rewatch. Hell yeah. The other day I should be patting himself on the back here. I would, but my, my yes, shirt doing is it. Uh, stuck to my back with sweat. So this
1: is how you're going to get yourself a mad
3: men. You're
2: still patting your back just because the shirt is stuck. I to did, you, But it's, it's like pushing it's, it further into your hair sweat.
3: Mm. All right, you pushed <laughs> it over the line to being graphically That's, explicit. Well, I, 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 I have I a visual right now, and
2: not everyone has the illustrated I
1: detail. I can't I'm trying see to David Sweat on Zoom, I,
3: but I have the the Zoom. I, like we all have Zoom on, but I can't see the window on my laptop. It's behind GarageBand and iTunes, and so this is a cruel reminder of what's happening behind those windows. <laughs> uh, but thanks for all the content and heart you guys put into the show. It's been appreciated for years now. If y'all can come up with an excuse to interrupt Joanna's book leave for a bit of fighting in the war room moonlighting, that wouldn't be a terrible thing. Cheers. Joanna has not been on the show in a
2: while.
1: And I don't think she's taking book leave from us. She's just taking book leave from Vanity Fair. (laughs) Wait, what's she writing a book about? Uh, What?
3: I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what what she's writing a book
0: about or with whom.
3: That's right. Uh, What? That was... Whiplash. We went from me being shamed for not knowing <laughs> that Joanna was writing a book to it being a state secret.
2: Um, yeah, that's called the finally, Trump administration. We, we've been learning.
1: Yeah, is finally, she John Bolton's ghostwriter, weirdly? yeah.
2: yeah.
3: Hmm. yeah she should have said Hey-oh. all the things she had to say while she was on the podcast rather than saying her memoir. <laughs> when well, they could have done some if we good.
1: Had, if we could have broken some news. <laughs>
3: yeah. uh, finally, we have a review that just scanning the first line, I feel despite the uh, subject line uh, patches will actually enjoy the subject line is patches needs to stop with six exclamation marks uh, by vader mcc but it, it, i feel like we're going to take a turn here patches seriously needs to step up to the plate and stop david Ehrlich's reign of terror <laughs> i used to be able to write off david's snarky glib dismissive opinion as facts as a sort of obnoxious role that of david Ehrlich, the film critic Recently, it has become all too clear that dear David isn't playing a role. He really is that obnoxious. <laughs> all that said, Fighting in the War Room is really one of the top tier film discussion podcasts out there. Yeah, I have to say, just to pause here, that <laughs> it's really heartening. And, and I think a wonderful endorsement of my co host that even despite my presence here, it's still one of the top tier film discussion podcasts out there. I I like like, highly to. I like hearing someone on a podcast
0: and being like, "Surely this is performance art."
3: Yeah, that's definitely what we're going for here: lively discussions with varied points of view, and most of the hosts treat the others' opinions with respect. I also love that Katie and Patches don't feel the need to discuss their kids as if they were the first cinephiles to ever have them. Okay.
1: Wow, I thought we discussed our kids way too much. I can't.
2: David's in a.
0: David's at a certain
2: period of life right now. We got to give him a little wiggle room. He's going to get to the age of his kids where he stops caring so much.
3: I can't tell if that was just a sincere (laughs) and kind uh, comment to the way that you talk. It does feel like uh, a backhanded bit of shade towards me. And uh, yeah, in in that case, hopefully it's not a backhanded because they'd get very sweaty if they did that to you. It's true indeed. But in in that case, you would have to (laughs) fuck really all the way off because uh, I don't know. Have a kid. It's,
1: um, have a kid, it's great. eventually it becomes, they will uh, watch stupid things and things that you can't endorse but david hasn't gotten there yet that's so as i didn't
3: mean have a kid more as, like a, as a life recommendation i meant that it's like be in my shoes for a second it's you know the uh the the black hole of my life it's uh, everything is is being sucked into that and uh it would be yes. i think a little bit stranger if uh, i weren't filtering everything i talked about movies included through that that lens right now Your dad we haven't now. even gotten to the point where asa is watching movies so it's only going to get worse from here vader mcc but i'll try to improve oh man we haven't even the, talked uh, about the
2: last of us if we're going to get to yeah. the i'm a dad now conversation. <laughs> Jesus. I, i'll try to improve on Let's, the more
3: general obnoxiousness uh as for everyone else if you're listening uh as i said in the in the segment every episode that we've done during the pandemic it is more heartening than ever to hear from our listeners please go on fighting in the war room uh, on iTunes and leave us a review. we love to hear from you. We will read them live on the air. They are good, bad, in between shaming us for having children and caring about them, whatever the case might be. Uh, and one of these days, Perry Mason will crack the code of what Joanne is writing a book about. Yeah.
1: David, if anyone on this podcast is going to have to go see Tenet, like professionally, it's going to be you. Is Tenet going to open in whatever, what, August, early August is when it's supposed to be At uh, The end, out? Of July oh, end of July it's
3: current. Uh, is it it's
1: actually current. going to open at the end of July?
3: Well, um, that's a that question that tough. I'm not really prepared to answer or equipped to answer. No, 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 I, I mean, like, what's see?
1: your bet? Like, do you think? Like, Gamble. Do you
3: think it's women? I feel like this live. is kind of a roulette situation where it's red and black, and then also there's like the double zeros. It's like not quite fifty fifty. It's like a forty nine forty nine two situation. Um, but I well,
2: we've we've heard that theaters have the intention of being open. AMC there had a whole controversy this past sure. week about oh, yeah. like are I mean, they going to make, all you, wear a, a we gonna make you wear a mask? Are they not? We all effectively
3: Twitter shame them into uh, forcing <laughs> that their their guests, as they call them. Wear a mask, and then we go follow suit. Now no dress. Yes, in quotation marks. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's very it's very corporate speak. All of the the people who go to see a movie pay for tickets. Ticket buyers, we call them. But um, you know, if if theaters are like every other business in America right now, they are going to recklessly careen forward, um, and just lean into the fact that we are, you know, dopely moving towards a hyper fatal herd immunity um, because no one in this country is capable of taking it seriously and American individualism has cursed us to all die. Uh, whereas so many other countries in the world that aren't run by, you know, uh, fucking the, the most amateur hour dictators in the world are able to cope with this uh, in better ways. But, you know, if, if you ask me today, it would seem that it's full steam ahead, but I think Uh, if the numbers continue to rise, it's only to become increasingly apparent on a day-by-day basis that everyone involved in this decision is going to have blood on their hands, Christopher Nolan included, um, Warner Brothers included, theaters and so on. And that actually extends, potentially, in ways that I I posed to Twitter last week more as a thought exercise uh, than sort of a, a statement of which way the wind was blowing or how I felt, that critics would have some moral responsibility to this as well. I mean, I think I would be a little uncomfortable uh, as of now, anyway, writing a review. Let's, and, and my, my tweets would have presumed for the purposes of this thought exercise that Tenet is good. I tend to like Christopher Nolan movies. I wouldn't be a shocking uh, opinion of mine to have. And it would be a very strange exercise to say, you know, Tenet is excellent. Like Christopher Nolan has delivered another, you know, brainy Christopher Nolan, summer blockbuster. Uh, but you really can't go see it because you're going to die and you're putting people's lives at risk. I saw it in a, uh, very controlled screening environment where I knew the other four people who were there and we were all sitting in designated seats 20 feet apart. Again, this is a hypothetical, but you, random ticket buyer out there should not go see this movie that I'm raving about the high heavens. You should wait for it to VOD. It feels like a very uh, precarious situation and I think uh, it it, seems unlikely that outlets and mass are going to get together and refuse to cover this movie. and it doesn't really get much bigger than a, a Christopher Nolan super blockbuster in our line of work, but uh, it it would make me feel a little bit unclean um, to encourage people to take their lives in their hands to go see this movie. And people have countered with saying, you know, as long as you're upfront about the risks and, and reminded everyone of them, and there's a certain degree of personal responsibility. And I think there's truth in that, but at the same time, I think uh, you're not putting so much the movie out. I'm not, but at the same see. time, the, the uh, disaster that we're seeing unfold in slow motion across the United States right now comes from that personal responsibility responsibility being left to the American people and, and, and inflaming their, their sense of uh, personal liberty at the cost of the safety of others. And that's not really something I'm keen to participate in right now, but I will have to have a conversation with my colleagues and see where it stands. I am not taking a position one way or the other, but I am, I am uh, hedging a little bit right now. I am a little, I mean, like,
2: I, I think this extends to not just what we do, having the cultural conversations to anyone who wants to be part of a cultural conversation, right? The draw, if tenant comes out, whether people review it or not, I mean, Uh, this is why Christopher Nolan could put a movie like this out. He's a brand name. When you put, uh, when Christopher Nolan has a new movie and it comes to theaters, people are going to scramble to go see it. Reviews be damned. And um, people will have to decide now if it's ethical for them to go see a Christopher Nolan. The reviews are. almost
3: I'm not pretending that. My review, one way or the other, uh, really uh, anyone's review is going to be the deciding factor. I'm yeah, just that's, and that's just not, not even what I mean. i just it.
2: mean this burden that you carry, even to just participate in the cultural conversation, is actually on our listeners on on everyone. I mean, we want to be part of the conversation. If the conversation is happening, you want to be there for it. And that's going to draw people in. So do you right. do each of us want to, and I'm not speaking as like a critic, I'm speaking as someone who just wants to go see a Christopher Nolan movie really badly. Do we want to participate in that or or not? And how do we take precautions? How do we, I don't know, can we say no to... Christopher Nolan movie it should be easier I think (laughs) think everyone should be
1: able to say no to like I don't care what David says about Tenet if he sees it I'm not going to go see Tenet in a theater I don't feel strongly enough about it to risk my life nor do I feel strongly enough to go to a restaurant I don't know that we know that movie theaters are more dangerous than restaurants and people are going to restaurants all the time like I'm not trying to be some like asshole with personal responsibility but I don't know man
3: but then when do you, when do you... i 'm not an epidemiologist, but it, it, from what i 've read, it does seem that sitting in a confined space like a movie theater surrounded by people who are not going to have masks on the entire time because of all the caveats about being able to take your mask off when you 're eating, and I don 't think people are going to interpret that as the actual moment when they are putting a cheesy covered nacho in their mouth, or rather the entire act of eating while they have their food there, and that can last the entire duration of the movie. Um, When you're sitting in restaurants, especially what I see in the summer weather in New York right now, most of the seating, restaurants just open today when we're recording this, and all the seating I saw around my neighborhood anyway was outside. And things carry a much less risk of transmission when you're outside. And so, I do think that movie theaters... Sure,
1: but there's lots of restaurants that are open inside, including where I am. Yes,
3: but movie theaters do seem uniquely dangerous to me, but... um,
1: I, I think I'm slightly less likely to go to a movie theater than a restaurant, but I don't, like, I, I think that when the responsibility falls, it's not on you. Like, if we're talking about like, should David re- give Tenet a positive review if needed? I think Warner Brothers shouldn't release it, but that's a whole I other think
2: that, question. I, I think that is the question. I think it's it's not on the consumer necessarily. It's on the businesses that choose to be open. The burden. I mean, this is uh, probably true, and maybe it's an ideological thing for for me. But like, we can all we all try and do the little things that we can in hard situations like this, and it extends to so many things, from like recycling to uh, you know your individual mission, the individual burden. But at the end of the day, and I was maybe it's because I was watching Queer Eye uh, this week, new season on Netflix, joyful, just wonderful thing to watch. This season, they made over a a Gen Z activist in Philly who is like hardcore. I mean, she's 18 years old and is is saving the world 10 times more than any of us and anybody listening to this podcast. What a wonderful woman. Um, She says straight up to one of the Queer Eye guys, it's like, yeah, don't feel bad that you guys drove a car to come see me because at the end of the day what you do is pretty insignificant and it's corporations who are fucking everything up. And that gets me because like I'm a lifelong recycler trying to be really attentive to the way I behave in this world and, and, and behave ethically and, and try and help uh, the progressive agendas I believe in. But then yeah, Warner brothers is putting 10 out. You know, they're luring people to theaters. I understand if someone was like, I got to see this movie because they're being, sucked into it and yes they have an ethical uh prerogative i guess to not to sit it out but i don't blame them that they're being lured and tempted in this way they're being manipulated by warner brothers if tenant comes out
0: yeah uh a company will never make a decision <laughs> to save lives over money so that's just so. like that's like the end of it it the I don't think that it responds; it, it falls on reviewers necessarily to take responsibility. But if it does, that's really sad because it should definitely be Warner Brothers first. It should be Christopher Nolan second, and if it, theater owners like third, and if it comes down to the reviewers are going to be the ones that are be like, "Hey, basically what I'm doing here is reviewing heroin. It has a very good chance of killing you if you want to enjoy it. It's super enjoyable. It's fucking heroin. You know it." <laughs> Like, uh, so here's...
1: Alright, alright. You're not you going to get addicted to it and go back <laughs> what, and what see it are? ten times. You um, can still do it. I guess it's not yeah, so much about sure. the
0: addictive thing, much it's, of it's about the potential lethality off of just doing your one thing wrong.
3: But it's also, you know, it does trickle down. Like, obviously, I, and, and critics anywhere, would be so much less at fault and so much less instrumental in this happening than, than the studios and the theaters and so forth. But... You know, especially in recent days when when our role in society, in all capacities, has been challenged and called attention to, and so forth, just playing a part in that machine um, rather than resisting in some way is is difficult, and it's a dereliction of duty one way or the other because either I'm not doing my job or um, I am slipping into some moral gray area. I'm not sure. I mean, I. I I think it's it's at the very least worth speculating about and thinking through, even if um, it's untenable to uh, uh-huh. avoid the movie entirely uh, in our line of work. But I mean,
2: here's the thing: I think that I would see Tenant in theaters if it opens at the theaters. But here's why: because I want to know. I feel like I also have a responsibility to, as like a journalist, I don't you know to to go out and be like. What is the movie theater like right now? If the movie theaters are open, someone should probably go to the movie theaters to figure out if movie theaters are trying even sure. remotely to be safe. Because and my I, big I, question is all these the AMC is going to tell you you need to wear a mask. Well, uh, as far as I know, AMC also tells you to not pick up your cell phone at any time during a movie. And um, people do it all the time. <laughs> like, what is going to possibly be in what
3: rules are going to really be in place? And in there's these already new such world a order theaters. kind of road rage in movie theaters. You know, so many stories, and you've seen this, you know, empirically of, of people uh, asking. Well, like 911 because talking. someone's using yeah. a cell phone in the movie. Boy. We had to go right there. But yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I, yeah, I think the, the potential you know, life or death stakes of this are only going to exacerbate that. And, uh, you know, I don't trust AMC to even turn the lights down before a movie or, or God forbid, mask <laughs> their screens. And we saw a lot of people making fun of that play on words, but you know, it's, it's, it's more about the people the you're in the theater with though. So like, already right. fucked.
1: I mean, my best hope for going to movies is my like barely functional local theater where there's never been more than 50 right. people in the theater for anything I've gone to see there. I don't know if they're going to reopen. Like they're not a national chain. Um, but that's where I would feel okay if, like, there were like five other people in there. Um, and movie theaters can operate that way; like, it's possible to see movies that way. But, I mean, is there anything other than *Tenet* that would ever make you guys wonder about this? Well, if no, I mean, I,
3: uh, the no same I, question applies to. Sorry, I was just going to say the yeah. same question applies to me for any movie coming out uh, on that first, you know, roster films that are coming out in July. *Tenet* is obviously the highest profile of those, but it's no different with *Mulan* or even the A24 horror movie *St. Maud* the only difference there is that it screened at Toronto last year. I saw it. I've already filed my review. That review will invariably be, it was a positive review repurposed to encourage people to go see it in theaters. Wait,
2: David, um, what do you think of a 24 putting St. Maud out in July?
3: I have the same reservations about that as I do Warner brothers putting out tenant.
2: I know that takes um, a lot because your son is named after a
3: 24. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, I can, think, I think it has unta- to be ten- you a lot of fun unpacking the mythology behind that but yeah. <laughs>
0: was- I think uh, for me it has to be Tenant because if this was from a filmmaker who didn't use the various theatrical formats to create mm. experiences that you otherwise wouldn't have I wouldn't this would be a very easy thing to write off if this was the new Mel Gibson movie I'd be like ah enjoy it fuckers I'll never see it but
1: Oh sure. What if it was Avengers Endgame?
0: Though? I mean, again, I don't think Marvel movie. I don't think Spectacle's the same as using the format correctly. I think Avengers Endgame is just as good on a four K TV now as it was in theaters.
1: But that that would have been all about the cultural conversation right. of like, like for me, right. tenet is less about like what is the experience I'm going to get. It's more like everyone's
2: going to be talking about it. Yeah, well, tenet's a, a double whammy, right? It's like what is what is this movie even about? No one even knows. We have to see it to like understand what mysteries he's packed in this. Plus, Christopher Nolan only see this movie in theaters. It's 70 millimeter. You got to see it on the big screen or you're a loser.
0: Yeah. Thanks, I mean, I, I've missed out on cultural conversations for big things before. So that wouldn't like hurt me necessarily, but there is like a very real threat that if I don't roll the dice and see tenant throughout its theatrical run, that that will be the only time you get to see Tenet as it was like presented. And that's what <sighs> makes me think this I is would- a
1: atypical case. I would, I feel like a re a release would happen when it's safe just for that. Um, Dave, remember when I sent you to a theater to talk about people going to mm-hmm. Joker? Uh, do you want to do that again? For, Wait, are you assigning for stories Tenet?
2: for Vanity Fair right yeah, now? Yeah, go
1: to the theater and talk to the people going to see Tenet and uh, ask them if they have a death
2: wish. Uh, I, I don't know. What I don't do know you if you're allowed it? to ask people in Colorado <laughs> if they have a death wish when they're going into uh, but, yeah. a... Yeah, and, for yeah,
0: another yeah. Christopher Nolan movie. Exactly. Uh, there's no, yeah, I don't know if that's... Yes, so there's, there's no why. fair history with that
3: at all. <laughs> and Good answer, suggestion, though. To answer something that Patches put out there uh, earlier in the segment, I would be a lot more comfortable going to a movie theater as a reporter to... Survey, you know how things are going there. If they are enforcing these rules and so forth, then I would be and then
1: get the fuck right, out. Of then there. I would
3: be. Well, I'm yeah, not even talking about my personal safety. I just mean like what service I would be providing. Then I would be uh, helping draw attention to the product at the movie theater itself. Yeah, uh,
2: figured out your existential mm-hmm. crisis for you. Now you have a reason to go. I,
3: you just just to give go up the part it. of my job I enjoy and uh, switch to just David going joins Cinema theaters.
0: Score and he's and like, need yes. a gas mask,
3: right. <laughs> <Great. laughs>
1: David, remember when you spent like thirty six hours in one movie theater just to watch went to Marvel? Yeah,
3: it's hard to imagine that we've come to a place where that's where, where the coronavirus air started. <laughs> now <laughs>
1: it, the, it was three. But years now
3: five. the air in a movie theater could actually be more toxic than it was after <laughs> baking in thirty hours worth of nerd farts. Uh, we'll need a scientist to examine that. Actually, it, I mean it's neck and neck. There was something diseased in that air that I will never. When <laughs> you used that to say neck itself, and neck, you literally
2: mean neck and neck. Oh, boy.
1: live in a city, but apparently not a major enough city to be besieged by fireworks every single night all the time. Uh, I had seen people tweeting about this for a while, but over the weekend, I feel like it really evolved into here is an elaborate theory about why this is from the cops, from the government, from Dave, do you want to walk me through the beats of like, so everyone knows these are not normal amount of fireworks. So why is it? So fireworks uh, were a form of
2: entertainment, but now they're a political statement. That's how what this started about was about. sort of out of uh,
0: Brooklyn Where a Twitter user slash Black Lives Matter protester brought up the fact that um, this uh, increase in fireworks had been taking pretty much uniformly in their neighborhood from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m., and that it was consistently like a high grade type of fireworks, like show like I mean, if you ever have a 4th of July show, like those type of fireworks, they shoot up, they explode. Sometimes they make sparkly things. Um, and basically pointing out, along with some video of uh, firefighters in Brooklyn setting off fireworks outside of a fire station, that it's very possible this is actually psyops, much like they run uh, helicopters late at night during nights where there are protests to cut down on the amount of uh, you know, sleep you could get in your actual neighborhoods and to uh, basically suppress the population and get them on edge in sort of like a warlike environment where every time it gets close to being dark, there's going to be a whole bunch of explosions. Um, I don't believe there's a coordinated national effort to do this, but there has been enough anecdotal evidence from people who have lived in, uh, you know, I've seen things from like Philadelphia, Chicago, Los Angeles, Oakland, and then here in Denver where they're like, this is actually more fireworks than would typically be so. Uh, Some people are saying it's because um, a whole bunch of fireworks shows got canceled because of COVID and these things have, uh, the fireworks have, you know, leaked into the populace. Uh, And some people are ascribing this um, fireworks phenomena to being. Part of like a I don't know really dumb police psyops operation.
1: All right, I think I believe. I first of all, I believe that fireworks are cheap because that makes sense. That all of do the, they not like, sell
2: like, them in North Carolina. Canceled. You don't you don't have fireworks.
1: Oh, they definitely do. Well, actually, I don't know if they're legal here. I don't. I think like not the big ones are legal here. South Carolina, where I grew up and where I spend Fourth of July, uh, anything goes. You can get whatever the fuck you want. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna examine this. Um, and I believe like like individual cops are. Precincts or whatever could be like, yeah, let's help light a lot of fireworks to annoy people. But it feels really different for me the idea of like flying a police helicopter over a neighborhood. Like, that's an act of like, we are watching you, we are surveilling you, like, we can fuck with you. Like, having other people set off fireworks for you, it feels like too many links in the chain to be organized, (laughs) but also having any faith that the cops aren't doing anything terrible feels like a naive decision. I mean, I think case. that if,
0: if That's we right. could get a whole bunch of people, because when I moved here, uh, to my neighborhood, uh, definitely the first, you know, batch of fireworks, I assumed they were fireworks cause I was moving out of Brooklyn and I wasn't like weirded to like the mid July, uh, wild and all that. Uh, but I do think there was a whole bunch of people on my next door whatnot who are new to this neighborhood or maybe, a gentrifying force, and that response would always be like, These damn kids, one or two, were these gunshots, which is fine, but also like a kind of an ignorant thing to ask people because uh, it, it, it kind of shows that you don't know like things about gunshots and you're just expecting gunshots in your community. So everybody sort of dealt with that next door wise. I realized next door was a trash fire, so I stopped paying like that much attention. But if we could get to instead of someone being like those damn kids, people being like, Maybe I should keep an eye on the cops, then I think that's a win for us just in sure, terms of society. Sure. I don't
1: I think I think if something weird is happening in my neighborhood, could it be the cops fucking with us? Decent question to ask. Yeah. And the
0: then way. I like I would also like the fireworks to stop. I, I think. No matter what I believe about uh who's causing them or whatnot, it would be nice to uh have some my, a few hours without them.
3: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> my, my feeling is that uh, until the fireworks wake up my child, I'm okay with them. Uh, if they cross that line, we'll revisit the situation. You're going to war. What Ace there, there's the... person who lives directly across from Ace's nursery sets off, like, they are the person on our block that is detonating fireworks all mm-hmm. night long, and uh, Ace does not seem to care, so...
2: Yeah,
3: just uh, babies I'm for the revolution.
1: Have you figured out who th- who who this person is and the, or how they're getting them? Can you do the journalism yeah. that I want? And Ooh,
2: yeah, to stop everyone. reviewing nah, Tenet lazy. for two seconds and just go and be productive. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> Actually, I've been
3: my video game assignments uh, have been taking right. we'll, so we'll long. I don't have stop time to do that, the fireworks journalism this. that people are clamoring for later <laughs> in the podcast. Uh, I could
0: tra- I could try this tonight because it usually starts uh, at about like ten minutes from when we're recording this. And we have a mosque parking lot next to our building, which is where they put the mortar down to like set it off. So if I have time tonight, and if it's regular, like it was before, instead of just filming the police who are standing around doing nothing a block from it, I'll try to actually figure out
2: who is uh, shooting off the fireworks. Here are my three comments on this to slowly wrap up. One, fireworks have always been bad. They're not fun. And I don't like big fireworks Ooh. shows either. They're very boring. What is the point wow. of that? What a waste.
0: Well, because oh we're God. as Americans, oh, we get to try pass. to blow up the sky. That's, we try <laughs> to shoot God in the face and we just celebrate <laughs> Attack it and year. dethrone
2: God, I see. <laughs> yes. Well, maybe I uh, like Pat, them again.
1: <laughs> Patches, you're coming to South Carolina for Fourth of July one of these years. So we'll show you. Uh,
2: yeah, place. show me the best of the best.
1: Have you ever set off fireworks? I've yourself? set off
2: fireworks, yeah. They're actually like
1: really big. Fireworks? The funny thing
2: about fireworks is you can buy them in Pennsylvania, but you cannot set them off. You have to take them to New Jersey and set them off. Um, That's ridiculous. But my two other points are. I feel my second point is I feel like Twitter discourse and, and is just becoming more I mean, as things become heated and things become important and the discourse becomes important, we're we're entering the space where everything feels like a form of infotainment. I feel like Twitter more and more is like cable news, it's nonstop and it's now descending into conspiracy theories that may have some sort of root in truth or not. Uh it's just it's actually strange to watch something that was kind of built as a parallel conversation to traditional media kind of devolve into something that feels like the next stage of cable news. Twitter
1: Twitter was the home for being like, Oh, are the police deliberately trapping protesters on the Brooklyn bridge to arrest all of them? Oh, they actually did that. Like the conspiracy kind of became true a couple weeks ago, which is what makes the
2: fireworks for sure. And so this is my third point. I do have a deep distrust of police, and I have a movie recommendation for people. If you have never seen the documentary, Let the Fire Burn, I feel like I've talked about it on this podcast before. Uh, it's a 2013 documentary. You can watch it on Canopy. I almost but it guarantee is,
0: you this is why I've heard from people in Philly.
2: This is about the Philly Police Department in 1985 dropping a bomb, dropping a bomb on the move organization a, a black organization that people saw as uh, militaristic I mean they were they they boxed themselves in a uh, brownstone in Philly and like had guns there I mean there was an issue there um, that needed to be resolved I and mean, the, the, the problem MOVE was I mean. taking. but they uh, dropped a bomb on their house and the whole block burnt and they the police blocked the block so it would burn instead of the,
3: the fire. Being well, hardly up the, the first time America's government agencies have turned against this. Oh, of course. So, <laughs> but just I, <laughs> watch this the
2: document. police worker or? having
1: a bomb does feel Yeah, bad. the police
2: don't need bombs. They don't need to drop bombs no, out of helicopters. No, they don't need bombs. But uh, I think no, even after that no description, do you'd it. be s- s- just taken aback by what really happened. So let the fire burn. It's streaming on Canopy. and if Did they ever put the I'm fire bad.
3: out in Philadelphia? Uh. <laughs>
1: David, video games.
3: Yeah, I'm just reading this tweet about how the Secret Service tells the press to leave the White House grounds in highly unusual move. Wow. Uh, that seems... seems um, Okay, so we are now come to a segment weeks in the making, and I know this show is called Fighting in the War Room, but I would like to take, uh, or like to make an effort rather, uh, to make this as civil a segment as possible. And I know I would be the offend, I would be the most likely to get a little ramped up. Uh, but the conversation around the video game we're going to be talking about tonight has been uh, so toxic in ways that I have not been privy to because I don't cover video games from from sort of within that community. Uh, I am an interloper, a lifelong gamer who is now sort of covering them professionally as IndieWire students in that space. But uh, in The Last of Us Part II has really been, the analogy couldn't seem to be any clearer, the last Jedi of video games. A hugely anticipated sequel um, that had gotten some flack from the worst pockets of the internet, really from the get-go once it was implied that Ellie, the teenage, the sidekick, if you will, from the first game was actually going to be the protagonist rather than the gruff, archetypical hero Joel. Um, and then later it was developed that it was announced that she would well, we already knew that she was uh, interested in women, but you know now she is sort of out and gay, and there's a major trans character, and there was a major leak of cutscenes in April that confirmed a lot of the rumors that have been going around, and the game immediately, months before it came out, began to get review bombed left and right, and toxic posts all up and down the internet. Uh, and then the game itself sort of made that analogy even more apt by being this uh, enormous blockbuster that had the audacity to really shake the foundations of what the, the story was and, and, and try to deepen and expand upon the core tenets of its source material rather than simply recapture them or, or try to uh, echo dimly. the the boom that had come before. Uh so just for context for the non-gamers out there who are uh, trying to position themselves in the conversation around this game. Yeah. Um that that's sort of been the conversation around The Last of Us. And as I've been writing about the game, I've seen firsthand in my mentions uh just how much that analogy has been borne out. But we are gonna talk about The Last of Us Part Two. And I am just gonna tee this off because uh with the disclaimer that I, I have become somewhat surprisingly, uh, even though I love the first game.
2: But Can you set up what The Last yes. of Us is about?
3: Well, let me, let me okay. get there. I was going to say, I am very passionate about this game. I, it's a rare thing. Uh, it doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's obnoxious for everyone around me that I really fanboy <laughs> about something. Uh, you know, There are a handful of times over the course of this podcast where some entertainment experience has really like, awed me and made me excited about it in a way that I haven't really been able to stop living with your world of tomorrow is the portrait of lady on fires and of course magic mike xxl and so forth um and
1: Godzilla Godzilla
3: right and this is uh this is sort of on that scale uh the last of us was a video game that was one of the final PlayStation 3 exclusives that came out in 2013 it's a post apocalyptic adventure game from the studio naughty dog it tells a story it begins uh, rather famously In the present day in Austin, Texas, where you control a uh, tween-age girl uh, uh, on the night of what turns out to be... The word zombie is never used, but a zombie-like outbreak of this cordyceps fungus. The cordyceps fungus is a real thing. It's parasitic. It it controls the organisms that it hosts. It's very freaky. (laughs) But in the game, it makes the leaps to humans, and society implodes. And And shockingly, at the end of the prologue, uh, Sarah is killed. Uh, It's very... Wrenching, um, and you—the game picks up proper. Uh, She's not even killed later. by a zombie. I believe. No, she is killed. She's by shot by a member. By of a million, that, uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, you control in the game when it picks up twenty years later. Her grizzled father, who's now a sort of a smuggler named Joel, and he is uh, played by Troy Baker. And I say, when I say played, I mean like they, these are uh, very, very much performances. All the scenes are shot with the actors who are been mo-capped in ways that I couldn't even begin to understand. Um, and they're down to the most minute facial animations. Obviously the technology is a superior in the sequel, but um, and his performance is very moving as is Ashley Johnson. She plays Ellie, who is a teenage girl who Joel is entrusted with. Uh, you know, she is his, his package that he has to smuggle across the country. Turns out that she is the only known person to be immune to the, Cordyceps plague, and he is entrusted with bringing her to this operation called the the Fireflies, uh, who are going to see if they can develop a cure from her. And if they bond over the course of the game, she becomes his surrogate daughter in a way. And spoilers for a seven-year-old video game now, at the end of the game, um, which is really told with sort of the the nuance and and the power and the emotion of something like a Cormac McCarthy novel or *The Children of Men, um, Joel is faced with a choice uh to he learns that in order to make a vaccine from ellie he would have to kill her they would have to kill her they would have to use her brain stem um and after ellie is knocked unconscious and prepared for surgery he makes the fateful decision and you are controlling all of this um to not that you have an option not to do this but to uh to kill the well-intentioned doctors who are to perform that operation and save ellie's life rather than investing in the future of humanity, um, and he. Uh, when Ellie wakes up, he lies to her and tells her that there was no hope of a cure and they couldn't do anything and she seems skeptical, and that's how the original game ends. It's a self-contained story that also ends on a wrenching cliffhanger that is ambiguous both in terms of what happens and also morally and has really uh, resonated with gamers for a long time and i
1: is the cliffhanger that he tells her that he lies to her what's the cliffhanger? I mean, the
3: cliffhanger is is like whether or not she knows but it's really he's just made this incredibly momentous decision um that for her he, yeah for her
1: and it's like a cliffhanger for humanity like he has doomed us to not solve yes the
3: and it's this very you know uh it's very much about the parents' love for their child and how uh, morality in the abstract is very simple. But when you're in the midst of something, perspective can cloud your judgment. Um, and uh, the sequel unpacks the ramifications of that decision, as you might expect. I actually like in the relationship even if the, the size of the games is comparable from like Alien to Aliens or they the like, developers of like different the stories from Godfather, Godfather Part Two, I think in terms of the suspense of the emotions that we have left off in the previous game, it's kind of like before sunset to before midnight where it's like it's left at this, this moment hanging on a breath with those two characters. And then so much of the the satisfaction of playing the new game is sort of seeing where everyone's lives have taken them. But The Last of Us Part Two has come out now. Uh, it was shrouded in secrecy for a very long time. Um, a lot of the people like myself who wrote about the game had to sort of abide by this video game like Omerta of not being able to describe anything that happens in it. Um, but it's uh, it's picks up for uh, five years later. Uh, Ellie is 19 now. They all live in Jackson, Wyoming in like a very happy settlement. Um, and she and Joel, the relationship seems to be on rocky ground for reasons we don't really know. Uh, she has a crush on a girl named Dina, who's played by Shannon Woodward of Westworld fame. Um, and uh, something really terrible happens. And Ellie is inspired to go on a roaring rampage of revenge that takes her. And Dina comes along and their horse Shimmer to Seattle to find the people who did this this terrible thing. Uh, and what unfolds from that is uh, what, to my mind anyway, was an immensely powerful and gripping uh, an edge-of-your-seat story that really, you know, because of the viscerality of of playing it, um, jangled my nerves about not only the cycles of violence, which is really just scraping the surface, and I think where a lot of reviewers kind of stopped analyzing the game, um, but a story about how we... A story about, you know, Children try to make sense of the choices that their parents made for them. It's really a game about Ellie trying to come to a place of understanding of what Joel did, trying to find some way to forgive him uh, if she can. And then some things happen that really reorient the story to being about perspective, the the, story about radical empathy and how... Uh, othering people and dehumanization of people across the fold. And we have seen this in our own world now, and the parallels with the virus are already uncanny enough, but um, uh, how that dehumanization can can really uh, start these ripple effects that can go on in perpetuity unless people can find a way to disentangle themselves from them. And the way that the game positions players to do that, takes them through that journey is is layered and human and powerful and ambiguous in its own way, in a way that moved me more than, and this is, this has been an existential crisis for me as a film reviewer, but uh, I I have not had this sort of emotional engagement with any movie I've seen this year um, and, uh, or or any book that I've read. Uh, It, I responded strongly to the original last of us, but this really does feel like a leap, not in what video games are capable of necessarily, but in the kind of stories they are willing to tell and the, um, the way that they're able to tell them. And, uh, that's, that's the start of our conversations here, but I've asked our panelists to prepare questions. So it's not just me monologuing for the rest of the segment.
1: What's the question you asked
0: us? To prepare he asked questions. four questions. Um, I- so I haven't played The Last of Us Part Two, uh, but decided as a you know a aficionado of spoiler culture to do one of my little uh, dives onto it. So about four hours—that's
1: a great description, yeah. Of Dave and his adventures.
0: I, I, I dove into about four hours of it <clears throat> uh, to watch somebody play through it, uh, like the first hour. Some stuff in the middle, and then the climax. And I read the plot description uh, before and after, so I kind of knew what was going on. I, this is not going to replicate the experience of playing it like uh, David did, but David, in terms of uh, like the mechanics of a game that this is, what does the Last of Us Part Two do to like sort of stand out? besides besides being because i i I think all naughty dogs games have really good story flow whether or not you like the characters and stuff i think that story flow is good is there something about this that they learned either in the telling of the story or in the actual mechanics of the game that makes last of us part two stand out over the first one
3: i mean i i'm not over the moon about all of naughty dogs games i enjoy some of the uncharted games more than others but uh I had a trouble with the fourth one for whatever reason. Um, I never actually finished it, but the, the quality of the writing and, and the complexity of the characters in this game sucked me in much like it did in the first one, but because the technology and the, the scope of the game has progressed to the point where it can feel so much bigger and and, and richer, uh, it works on that level. And the writing is really phenomenal. And the credit goes to Neil Druckmann and also Hallie Gross, who was a Westworld writer on season one. And I believe only season one uh, who was uh pulled in to be the narrative lead here, um, but the answer to your question about it in terms of the player's control. So much of the first game was about you controlling Joel as he killed reams of not necessarily innocent people, but these sort of like faceless others in the service of protecting this girl, and ultimately killed innocent people um, to make a morally ambiguous decision that a lot of players were on board with at that time because they had aligned themselves with Joel by virtue of controlling his his movements. And there's that you know uh, that connection, that sort of neural, specific rim-like connection that players make with the the characters on the other end of their joysticks. Um, and it was sort of about making you complicit in that decision, understanding how uh, a person would reach that point. Even if, if you took a step back, you wouldn't make the same decision in the abstract. What I found so fascinating about the sequel is how it felt to me like the characters were trying to extricate themselves away from your control, trying to wrest that control back from players. I mean, it's a game where Ellie, the main character starts having the most momentous decision of her life made for her forced upon her by, uh, by Joel. And I don't want to get into the specifics. We can have a spoiler section later, but I don't want to go into the specifics as to when she learns the truth of what happened. But the fact remains that she was, she had no agency in making that choice. And uh there are, Key junctures in the game where you're controlling Ellie, where you're controlling other characters, uh, where you bring them to a certain point, and then after pushing a character to the brink of death, after having your hands around somebody's neck, whatever the case might be, the game forces that character without any control, without even a cutscene, without you having to repeatedly press square to do something that you may not understand in the moment. And that's something the game fucks with a lot throughout in really interesting ways because. Neil Druckmann is very interested in the dissonance that's created when players are role-playing enough to engage in behavior that they would personally not advocate. But it also cuts both ways in that you get to a point where you travel through this long level and kill a bunch of henchmen and the characters travel hundreds of miles. <clears throat> and then at the last second, they can't bring themselves to do what you are sensibly brought them there to do. And it really... Makes a meal of that dissonance and 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 what it means and the thematic resonance of the characters being able to regain that agency for themselves.
2: I, it is it is interesting to have an entire game franchise built around agency agency making choices and that feels like so on the rails of of, of storytelling. Like you don't actually make a lot of decisions have, again, it, in these games that shoot that send you in different directions. You don't have it. Control as a player, you're really—it's almost like Dragon's Lair. Like, do you want to go this way? Do you want to have, like the game elements? I've heard, and I've only experienced Last of Us One. I haven't played Last of Us Two, which I'm told by Polygon people has more and it has more enjoyable like game elements to it. Yeah, um, but it's funny. Post that, on
3: Polygon about the rope this, is amazing. By the way, the post on Polygon about the rope is amazing. <laughs>
2: check it out um, but yeah i just think it's interesting that uh, if the, if the ideas of this franchise are all about making choices the game doesn't
3: really you like don't make, really any. make that seems you conflict. don't really make any choices it's 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 bizarre it's, it's mm-hmm. an interesting evolution of what games have done because so it's been very sort of rudimentary how they have always aligned those two things like gamer choice with the idea of choice and i think back to like the most basic example in Bioshock, which is a game that I enjoyed, but this mechanic never worked for me because I never felt invested in whether or not, uh, you know, they're like, do you want to kill the little girls, like the little sisters or whatever they're called? If you kill them, it's sad because they're cute. And I guess they were little girls at one point, but if you kill them, you get more powerful upgrades or whatever. And because it was such a superficial choice to make, and I wanted to be more powerful in the game, I never hesitated to kill them and I got a worse ending or whatever, Um, but
0: well, I mean, the I think that bypasses the "thank you kindly" part of Bioshock story. But go ahead.
3: Sure, sure. I mean, that's a that's a part of it as well. What agency is kind of an illusion in that game too, right? But uh, but that is a decision that is left to players unambiguously. I mean, it's the player's choice to kill the little sisters or not. And I just never could have cared any less. Well, Whereas see, that's in,
0: where that's where I'm worried about. I mean, like, not worried. I can see why people are reacting uh, like butthurt. Last Jedi anti people to this game, uh not because it's trying to have like a social justice standpoint or any of that like bullshit, but you're talking about a medium where like, you know, if I uh video games, a certain category of video games is all about you making that character your own. If you're an RPG character, you're like building it out. And then certain part of video games are about, you know, molding you into an experience. I really like Telltale's The Walking Dead for reasons that sound similar to why some people like the the last of us is because it makes you realize like in the middle of a decision that seems really gory that you didn't really have any other choice, but to do it. But I think the dangerous part of the last of us part two, as like a storytelling device is taking uh, a game that works so well, where you're, you're like, you were saying forced throughout the entire game to Get yourself in the mindset to kill all the doctors, as Joel. Whereas the Last of Us Part Two says we're going to continue this story that had an ambiguous ending that you personally connected with, and the characters are not necessarily going to be what you created in your mind because we we really want to control this experience.
3: But that's so, any sequel. I mean, like that's the same as the Last Jedi or really any sequel. I mean, it's once you dare to make but those are extension movies. of the story, you're fucking with the canon. Yeah, you could, yell at, you could right. yell
0: at Ryan Johnson about it, but if you <laughs> don't like The Last of Us Part II, the, the reality is you've just played through The Last of Us Part II. You are right. complicit in the story you didn't like. So yeah, I, It I doesn't it, surprise me that people are mad.
3: I might put it in less flattering terms and saying that there's an element of entitlement that gamers bring to the table uh, in uh, the privilege of that control, where even when you have a control, that control is meted out to you by the developers of the game. It has been extended to you. Even in sandbox games, you can really only do uh, until you start modding it, and that's a whole different conversation. But, uh, you know, you can really only do what the parameters of the game allow you to, and so it's still a degree of control. But I also don't want to get too hung up on that element because I think it's just a tiny part of what makes The Last of Us Part Two so interesting. Um, what grabbed me most about it was... You know, in part, the minute-to-minute joy of playing it, and I really want to double down on what Patches was saying about how I'm also playing for The Last of Us 1 right now, because when I obsess over something, I like to go all the way. Wow. Uh, and <laughs> um, I've, been, I've been... The Last of one, uh, Us Part 1 is, is pretty quick to blitz through. The Last of Us Part 2 is twice as long. Um, but uh, the mechanics of playing The Last of Us Part 2 are beautiful. It's like, it really feels like you're alive in this world, and there's so much that you can do in combat, just exploring There's this huge open world area. She can jump now. She can jump now. She can go on her belly and scooch under tanks. Um, and The Last of Us Part 1, you really do feel like a Resident Evil character where you're just sort of like in these blocky movements. Um, not quite Resident Evil bad, but uh, it does feel a lot cleaner and more fluid to play now. But it was really the, the story and my care for these characters that uh, sucked me into it. I mean, I was really just... Uh, you know, it I, felt I like mean, it, it, it felt the same part of my brain that when you're sitting down for a really good movie that's firing on all cylinders and and engaging that critical part of you was going off that dopamine hit for 31 hours let, let,
2: let me let me ask you a question that segues into some minors. Well, some we, major do we probably want to spoiler, do spoiler territory. Do we
3: want to do? Yeah, spoiler? because
2: we got we also got to wrap up. Yeah. We're going we're going pretty long here, but I want to get you to some spoilers about the game. So if you have not played the game all the way through, just just stop listening um, and or jump ahead. I I'm sure the end of our show is really enjoyable too. Lots of jokes, some uh, Twitter <laughs> yeah, yeah. feeds. The, and such, the outro time code is up. on your list, right now. Um here's here's my question to you, yeah. David. Uh and, and so I'm gonna frame this with Last of Us One, which is what I've experienced in not Last of Us Two, but please respond about Last of Us Two. Um, I'm surprised that you like these games because they are ultra realistic, which is something like It's interesting. Games can be anything, especially because they're an animated medium, because there's no... There's no photographic tradition like there is in movies. They can really just go in any direction, be anything. The they possibilities can go are, through
1: the uncanny valley. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The, they don't have you to could deal be carrying with that a baby and then, and then,
1: through that uncanny
0: valley and trying to
2: balance boxes. <laughs> and then like. the control element, oh, the control element means you have this added layer of just like you can do anything and you can ask people to participate in any kinds of ways. It's interesting to me that in this medium of limitless possibilities, that you gravitate towards something so um, realistic and, and because I feel. Like, I've heard you make this criticism against movies that are just like, or animated movies, especially, that are just like, why is it going towards photorealism? Why is it trying to emulate real life when there are so many possibilities that cinema offers us? But then, and then not only that, let me just say that The Last of Us has some like really staid, terrible, miserableist ideas and drama that it's just like the acting is so bad. I, I get what Neil Druckmann is trying to do, he's trying to kind of elevate it, but I feel the hand of of the director and I, the, I would, the pregnant pauses in The Last of Us. It's just, I, it's I would so push bad, back. But. I would
3: push back and say that the quality of the acting in The Last of Us is in the original game is phenomenal. The replaying the game now, I, the technology even in the remastered version of the game on PS4 just wasn't really there to support the performances. Troy Baker as Joel and Ashley Johnson as Ellie are able to push through it, particularly in those final scenes. But when from the very first scene of the last of us part two, when Joel is playing his guitar and talking to his brother, Tommy, it, it like all of those technical concerns fade away. It is like, you forget that you are watching something that is animated for mo- for the most part.
2: Well, so then let me ask you that. Well, I know that last of us two has a lesbian relationship, which is a kind of like, it scratches an itch for you, you know, Okay. Own, like, portrait of a lady on fire. And the, the, that's, so that's playing into some of your favorite things. Although
3: along the line, along that line, I do want to say, Dave was alluding to Death Stranding and the idea of a baby. Now that we're in the spoiler section, this is another game uh, that I've really strongly responded to, and my apologies to that reviewer who uh, was berating us for tying everything or me, anyway, for tying everything back to that new kid. But this is another game that builds to having a baby play a major role, Uh, and there's a scene towards the end of the game where you are... uh, Ellie and Dina have sort of retired to this idyllic farm, and they have a baby that it's a product of the plot of the game, and it's this little baby named JJ. And Ellie is a parent it's to James. it, and she—it's
1: it's JJ. It's JJ Abrams. <laughs> yeah, no, it's Richard named story.
3: after Joel and Jesse. Um, and oh. uh, he, there's this bit where she sits on a tractor with him, looking over the sunset, and Ashley Johnson improvises this song about the baby being a little potato. And then Ellie has to make this decision. Well, Ellie is goaded essentially into uh, leaving the farm and continuing her mission for revenge um she was also feeling ptsd and mentally unwell i did an interview with haley gross haley gross and uh gross hallie gross and neil druckman a spoilerific interview on new in, in right now where hallie talks a little bit about how uh, ellie is suffering from ptsd and feels like she can't really be a person on the farm without getting the closure that she needs from this whole thing with the character of abby but you know that you have to make the you have to go to a certain place, hit a certain button to leave the farm. And the second time I was playing through the game, I just couldn't really do it. It's so heartbreaking. I just uh, I just wanted to sort of mill around that farm and find all sorts of new business to do uh, for hours on end.
2: Well, yeah, that's what I was most interested about in talking about spoilers and really to wrap it up. But like what, what happens at the end that hit you so hard?
3: It was really how... So this is what's interesting about this game. and It is not something I'd seen done in the medium before. Um, and I do want to avoid talking about... You know, video game. This being this watershed moment for video games in a way that feels condescending towards the medium, because video games do a lot of things. But uh, the this is a character driven story in a way that I think is largely alien to this medium, unless you're talking about like point and click games, and uh, that is really hammered home in the very final minutes of the Last of Us Part Two, where uh ellie it ends in uh, ending that is not entirely dissimilar from searchers ellie has sort of become this western hero uh, where she returns to that home that she left that farm home after completing her mission although not killing the person that she goes to santa barbara to kill and she finds the house is abandoned dina has left with the baby um the the little stencil that you've drawn onto the tree with the heart around your initials is uh is all that's really left of uh, your your presence there. And she goes and plays the guitar and she has the last flashback of the game where it's this conversation she had with Joel on the night before he died, where you sort of get to the iciness in the relationship and the immense unprecedented amount of survivor's guilt that he has transferred onto her now that she knows what happened. And she says that, you know, she's never really going to be able to forgive him, uh, but she's willing to try. And then he says like, okay. And it really reframed the game for me in a way that is giving me chills right now just thinking about it uh, as her journey towards forgiving him. Um, Not as a story about a cycle of violence, which of course is sort of the engine driving the plot forward, but a story about how we live with ourselves and how we live with the people who have made us who we are. And it comes at a great cost for her. And the ending is similarly ambiguous. You don't really know, even though she leaves the guitar behind uh, and it's, it's, you know, is she putting Joel to rest? Is she going to go return to Dean? You don't really know what the future holds for her, but um, it does feel like by she has redeemed what's left of her humanity by finding a way to forgive Joel. And it really, really puts a nice finishing grace note on the story about perspective. Uh, this is a very symmetrically structured game. There's a prologue, Three Days in Seattle, and you switch to the playing the girl who murdered Joel Uh, Her name's Abby, and you spend three days uh, reliving the same three days, Rashomon style, almost uh, as her. And then there's this epilogue in Santa Barbara, and there there are echoes in the stories that really hammer home how symmetrical they are throughout. Um, You know, Ellie loves space. Abby has a fear of heights. uh, Ellie is like it's it's all these things throughout. I can go on, but um, (laughs) there there are dozens of them, but uh, uh, done in very lovely ways. But it really, it really. really landed with me. And, and it seemed like such a risky gambit to make a sequel to, you know, I use quotation marks here, but like a perfect self-contained thing. And after finishing the sequel, it left me feeling like the same way I you know, felt going back to that before sunset analogy like I did after watching before sunset where I wanted another version, another chapter of the story every handful of years for the rest of my life. Um, I, I just thought it was immensely moving. And I think I'm very happy that Craig Mazin, who was buying Chernobyl, is adapting the franchise to an HBO show. It's directed by the guy who directed Chernobyl, um, I presume, with similarly impressive production values and so forth. Um, And I think it'll it'll be very, very effective as an HBO show. Um, But it's hard not to foresee a day playing The Last of Us 2 where some of the most sort of moving and impactful narratives are going to happen in the video game space. And I wonder if like your kitty riches of the world, uh, or whoever else who are averse to video games, hey, we got to get you a PS5. Yeah, a one? To, uh, Sony <laughs> mm. will send you one when the time comes. They are, they're, uh, pretty helpful. It turns out, briefing, but, um,
1: reaping begins.
3: <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, or or like we see with these Broadway shows that are adapted from movies and turned back into movies, whatever the case might be. Maybe it's just a matter of like where, what medium, a uh, new story that excites people spontaneously appears in, and then you just wait for it to be uh, adapted to a place where you are comfortable. Last the Last of experience. Us, the
2: musical. <laughs> oh boy!
3: Uh, but <laughs> or anyway, Hamilton I, I mean,
1: now on Disney Plus or <laughs>
3: soon. <laughs> the promise. trailer for Hamilton looked pretty hot. I'm just Oh my god! Uh, but, uh, we'll get Hamilton,
1: good truth is i thought it mattered i thought that music mattered but does it bollocks not compared to how people matter that does it for this week's show we'll be back next week i still will not have played last of us part one or two Uh, in the meantime tell people who you are
2: i'm matt patches senior editor at polygon.com the exclusive home of the best last of us part two Mm -hmm. coverage um, and we have a website com, where you can listen to the episodes and you can share them with people who don't have podcast apps
3: uh, I'm David Erlich. I'm a senior film critic and I guess uh, new video game correspondent for IndieWire uh, you can find me on Twitter David Ehrlich you can find me on in IndieWire where I wrote a spoiler free thing about the last of part two last week and a very in-depth spoiler filled article with the writer and director of the game uh, this week um, you can find all of us on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Please leave us a review. We love it, even when you hate us.
0: And I'm Dave Gonzalez. Spell my first name, DA70. You can follow me on Twitter there. I'm also on The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. Very good banter. Um, if rewatching Lost isn't for you, we will be there when you get there, if you ever get there. But also, it's been very interesting rewatching Lost in this current day and age. The Lost looks different from 2020 than it did when it was airing. The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast.
1: Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com and on the Little Goldman podcast there where this week we're talking about The Watermelon Woman, which is a one of the free movies on Criterion Channel right now. Um, made in 1996. It is, I think it is the first movie released by an out black lesbian filmmaker. Uh, and it's awesome. And you can watch it for free and it's like 80 minutes long and like fun. So watch that and listen to us talk about it. Um, You can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can talk to us about whatever you want or answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In
0: honor of the questionable decisions of large movie chains, what's a movie you saw at a drive-in?
1: Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.